Shalhevet High School presents the Radical Moderation Podcast. Here's your host, Rabbi Ari Siegel. Welcome back to the Radical Moderation Podcast. I'm your host, Ari Siegel. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Tamara Tweel. Before we get a chance to hear from Dr. Tweel, I just want to remind you, if you enjoy the podcast, and only if you enjoy the podcast, please click on the link below to give us a five-star rating, maybe write a sentence. The reason I ask is because if you're enjoying it, I assume you'd want to share it with other people, and that's the way it gets shared, by having people leave uh, ratings, and then it bumps it up the rankings so that other people can see it. We're also on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Rod, Rad Moderation, R-A-D Moderation, and our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Radical Moderation. Dr. Tweel, welcome. Do you have a Twitter handle? I do not. You're not even on Twitter. <laughs> I am not. You should know I just learned the word handle. Handle, yeah. I know, and you deployed it so well. <laughs> Thank you. It, <laughs> it felt very natural. Um, all right, so I always start off my podcast with a couple quick-hitting softball questions. I'm ready. Question number one. What are you reading now? Jill Lepore's um, These Truths. Tell us, tell my I'm listeners so a little bit about I'm so excited about it. I love Jill Lepore. She's a historian um, from Harvard, and she writes for The New Yorker. And she wrote a really masterful, um, full history of the United States of America. And it, I think she also wrote it in um, with a real civic goal in mind, which is what is the history we need today? How do we constantly rethink our history and write our history so that it's of great use to us? And it's beautifully rendered, but it also does a lot of um, work, I think, to frame the current political moment for us. So that's an interesting sentence you said is uh, sort of writing the history in a way that and then you whatever the rest of your sentence is, (laughs) isn't that antithetical to history? I mean, shouldn't history just be some sort of objective? I know it's not, but how is she doing that or what is it about the way she does that that you find so compelling? I mean, how do you write a few hundred years of history? You're always making choices. So I think that the choices she makes are resonant, like resonate today. Like they just resonate for me. With the moment we find ourselves. Yes. And I, 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 I believe in truth. But I don't believe that the stories we tell ourselves ever fully attain it. Hmm. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so you're based in New York, and joining us, do you live in Brooklyn? I live in Brooklyn. Nice. What's your favorite coffee place in Brooklyn? Or favorite little cafe? Oh, I love this place called Stocked on Vanderbilt. It's like right near, um, it's like right near where I live, and it's run by a family, and it's just like a beautiful, fabulous place. And it feels like a 1950s coffee shop. Like everyone comes in from the neighborhood, you say hello. I love, I love it. it. That it sounds Brooklyn like, small. Isn't it sound like, isn't that what Brooklyn is like in general now, it is. the whole thing? I love thing? it so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just really nice to live in a big city, but feel the benefits of a tight communal neighborhood. Right. All right. So what would you say? You've been in LA now for a few days. You've been here at Shell Havet. What What's the biggest difference you notice between LA and New York? You can't say the weather. I'm really um, touched by how incredibly warm and thoughtful all the students are. And they just seem, they have an ease in the way they interact with adults um, and an ease in the way they seem to carry their intelligence and creativity. It's an ease and confidence that feels, I don't know if it's born in LA or born in Shalhevet, but it's a great gift of uh, where you teach. Wow. That's, thank you. That's beautiful. Um, okay, that wasn't meant to be so serious, Sorry. Dr. Tweel. Sorry. It's supposed to be something like, you know, I don't know, the trees or something. <laughs> um, okay, last softball, yeah. getting to know you question. Okay. Best purchase you've made in the last six months under $20? I feel like I'm being stumped. What did I purchase? 
I'm sorry. It's okay. <laughs> we can always come back to that can one. Can you give me a different softball question? <laughs> I'm not aware of what I've heard. To, I'm not, I'm not country. I don't know. You don't think about that. No, I also maybe, what did I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm so sorry. That's terrible. I ruined your softball maybe, question. Should we just shut the podcast down right now? I know. I, I, you know, like I want another softball. Do you, have a, do you have a plan B softball? Can you, yeah, can you plan, give me another softball? Plan. I only ever buy books. That's all I buy. That's I buy books. Buy. I buy books. Too all, many books. Paper books or Kindle? I, like, I really like paper books. You do, but don't you find that they just pile up My everywhere? husband thinks I'm a hoarder. <laughs> Isn't we there gave a show? away 500 books when we moved from Ohio to Brooklyn. Where were you? What you you lived in Ohio first? Uh, yes, and we gave away five hundred books. Really? Yes. That's pretty remarkable. Yes, my daughter just wrote her school paper about it. She had a like third grade report about how traumatic? emotional her mother was. It was traumatic. <laughs> giving away the. Who'd you give it to? <laughs> the the public, you know, Columbus, Ohio has one of the best public library systems. Ah. So I gave it to the public library at Bexley, my one of my favorite public libraries. Beautiful. Okay, I'll give you another yeah. softball question. Okay, give me another one. Okay. iPhone or Android? Don't say BlackBerry, please. I have an iPhone. You do? Why? I do. Do you like it or you're just like a creature of um, I do. I, I, I really dislike my relationship to my iPhone. I feel like I, I, I strive for like technological health and I don't have it with my phone, but I do think it's a beautiful item. <laughs> you mean aesthetically? Yeah, I think it's aesthetically it like is. very beautiful. I think it is a, a, a source of incredible anxiety. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't like that I have no more... I. My favorite, like I love Shabbat because you have long spans of time to, th- I mean, I love Shabbat for many reasons, right. but for me it's healthy because I need long spans of time to think. Right. And I find that because I have an iPhone, I personally don't give it to myself. It's amazing. Like yeah. I'm the one in charge. I-, I should be the one in charge and yeah. yet I'm not. Yeah. I have those phantom yeah. ring feelings where I think it's ringing and it's, <laughs> totally. it's not. Yeah, and no, I it's- check new, I do that terrible thing where I'm like, oh, what new information happened? Like, I think it's called an addiction. Yeah, I'm addicted. Technically, yeah, exactly. I try so, and I try hard to not be, but I, I suffer from it. <laughs> It's why I don't have a handle. I need I need no more addiction. I oh, a Twitter handle. I don't want anything else that makes my mind work in small spurts of time. <laughs> like, it's not good for me. I got it. I, yeah. I think that is a sentiment shared by almost everybody I know, but nobody seems to be able to get rid of their phones. I know. All right. Maybe there'll be a uh, swinging back of the pendulum and we'll all just move back to those flip phones back in the day. Yes. Those were great. Those were so great. T9 trying to type out. I want to really crave, I really crave like an actual phone. Like that you put like to your a physical ear. phone. Well, I just remember I used to have these like long conversations with my nana, uh, and it was always like so. It, there was something so nice about the physicalness. Comforting. You lean on it, kind of it fits between your shoulder. Yeah, and, your... and we only ever spoke when I was like home and not uh, doing anything. And now all my emotional conversations are like walking between A and B. I don't know. I've lost the intimacy of. She used to call it like a good visit, and I feel like I've lost the intimacy of like. A good visit on yeah. the phone. I feel like we've become our parents now who complained about the good old days <laughs> totally. right now. I like, know. do you remember when were those Muppet guys in the corner? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should embrace it. Like, it's so awesome. I get to speak to my uncle while I walked. Exactly. <laughs> All right. It is what it is. All right. So ordinarily, I read the credentials of the people oh, who gosh. appear on my Don't. show. Ari's introduced me like 12 times since I've been at Shell Heaven. She means Ari Schwartzberg. <laughs> don't, don't introduce me. You don't want me to Let's introduce you. Talk. I was planning on skipping it. It's enormous, yeah. your credentials here. I, what I would, how about we put them in the bottom, in the description of the podcast? My sound engineer is nodding, yes. Okay, okay so we'll do that. First of all, you're, <laughs> you're, you're incredibly accomplished. Who are you really, though? Meaning, like, give us the, beyond the degrees you teach at, you know, you're at Columbia, your degrees, you're published all over the place. I read an incredible article you wrote to the Zuckerbergs 
I think in the Jewish week. Oh, yes. I thought it was one of the most profound pieces. Oh, thank you. Just in terms of saying, challenging them to think under what um, guidelines, if you're going to give this to have a political impact, if somebody on the opposite side of the aisle would be giving it, under what uh, set of rules would you want that to be given? I thought that was an incredibly profound uh, piece. Sorry, that was just a side note. No, thank you. Um, Thank you. Tell us about you. Who are you? First of all, why are you appearing on my podcast if you're this, you know, like you're this famous? You, this podcast only you has- invited a, me to Shell Heaven. Oh, that's true. I did invite you to Shell Heaven. <laughs> I've been, I've and you had no choice. You're like, I had no choice. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, tell us, how, what are you passionate about? How'd you get to where you are? Give us a little bit of that, the the origin story of Tamara Twiel. I feel like I need a little more guidance. That's just too broad. How did you end up? <laughs> did you, when you were growing up, were you like a radical, radical no. moderate? Were you thinking you were going to be oh, an academic? Okay, were you thinking, I can answer you. Go for it. Um, I think I said this on Monday night, but I grew up, um, and I actually grew up in a, very, in a secular home, but a home totally devoted to family. Like I grew up with very close to my extended family and extremely close to my grandparents. And my father is an incredible man. And he grew up in very difficult circumstances, um, but was really given a lot of gifts through uh, political life. So he got his first job, actually, um, through a political party. And he got to go to city. He, got, he went through public school and got to go to city college. And When you said he grew up, um, are you okay if I ask you what that yeah. means? Like, was it financially hard? Is it? He grew up... Um, I don't know if I want to talk. I don't. I feel okay. bad. I haven't asked his permission, no, no, but so I will say that he grew up um, the child of a single mom without many means, uh-huh. um, with a lot of loss Got it. and a lot of psychological challenges that he was responsible for. To like he had to take responsibility wow. over his household at a very, very young age. Um, but he grew. He's such a grateful man. Like he's just a very grateful person and. He has always, he always felt like he had a public school system. He had public health. Um, he believes in the city of New York. He believes in the government. He d- devoted so much of his professional life for working for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who wow. was our senator from New York. So I grew up with this is what public service looks like, wow. um, and this is what a uh, I've, I've been using this phrase, but like what significant citizenship is, like you help your city. Hmm. Um, and you help your city in a lot of ways. I, I feel totally formed by um, both my parents are incredibly bright, thoughtful people, but they were also educated by the way Moynihan approached problems. And how was that? I- it, it was so um, just intellectually rigorous, but not intellectually rigorous to the point where you don't do anything. Hmm. So if you want, he would like research a, a, a topic and he loved data. And I, I, math is not my strong suit, but I understand its value. So he wants, to, he would read, I mean, you just go to his home and there'd be books on like every topic he was researching, plus all these reports that he had found just so he could analyze the data. And you'd sit with a ton of information and really try to understand what is a policy solution and what's a creative solution. Hmm. So, I mean, this is a, a catchphrase that people talk about with Moynihan a lot, but he would say, you know, well, you can't regulate guns, but we should really be regulating bullets. <laughs> like bullets are something we can do. So he always ha- he had a deeply creative policy approach to all yeah. these issues, and I always felt that the most extraordinary room to be in is a one where you're having creative policy solutions. Huh. Is there? A, I love is, that. Is there a politician today or or politicians today who you look at and think follow that model of Se- Senator Moynihan? I don't know. It's something that I feel. Um, I think there's a lot of wonderful people in public service. But I've always struggled with my smartest students don't really go into policy creation. 
Um, and I wonder if we haven't made it exciting enough or intellectually rigorous or if they don't really feel like their mind will be put to good use there. Or do they feel like there's, given gridlock that we see, that it's yeah. sort of like, why would I go into something where I can't really move the needle kind of thing? Totally. But I hope that, I mean, I do, I, I do think there are a lot of people doing it. I'm probably not close enough to see all the creative things they're creating. That was a very politician-like answer there, Tamara. Maybe you could go into politics. I'm thinking of one. I actually have a colleague who um, was a postdoc at Columbia University who recently moved back to Idaho to run this uh, Medicaid expansion campaign. His name is Luke Mayville. And I'll give him a shout out because <laughs> I think he wrote this amazing book on John Adams. Like He has incredible intellectual rigor. He has a great love of country and a great love of making government work for people. Hmm. And I think that gives him a lot of creative energy in terms of the solutions he's trying. Got it. And I think he has also a nonpartisan approach. Like, actually, if you really dig deep, he's mm. he's just trying to solve problems with the most, like, whatever, the right people in the room. Whichever yeah. policy that is, yes. whatever that aligns with. Yeah. So I'm following his career closely. He just moved back to Idaho, I think. That's pretty cool. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into some radical moderation. Okay. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Okay. <laughs> I love the phrase. We need it. We need it. But before we jump into it, okay. I always do that. That's like a rabbi yeah. who gets up and says, before I give you my speech, I want to just share some thoughts kind of thing. Yeah. And I hope you're okay with this. I, so I've been, I met you a few months ago and was totally just blown away by hearing you talk about civil discourse and civics and politics and how that's been turned into advocacy as opposed to public service. Like everything you said, I was like, not only did it felt compelling to me personally, felt very aligned with what we're trying to do here at the school at Shalhevet. Um I've been, so I've the last three days I've kind of been following you around, not in a stalkerish way. You understand? <laughs> Just um, I've noticed you say the the following sentence very often when listening and talking to somebody, and it's funny because our entire faculty has noticed it. Oh, and, no. And, no, in a really, really amazing way. Whenever someone says something to you, even if they disagree, they agree with you. You say you really genuinely seem to ask. I assume it's genuine because it feels that way. I'm curious why you say that, or I'm curious why you feel that way. Can you talk about that? Is that like, is that a tool you learned at some point and now it's embedded as part of you? Is that a natural curiosity? Is it a little bit of everything? It's, I, I just wanna tell our listeners, there isn't anyone who, if I would say the same sentence over and over again, I think people would be like, you're just disingenuous, Siegel. Maybe that's cause I am. I'd be using that word in a disingenuous way. You seem genuinely curious every time you ask it. Can you, what is that about? Where's that from? I hope you. I hope that's not. No, offensive. Uh, it's funny. No, I. I, I no, it's. it's I mean, I. <laughs> I'm glad I say that. Like, I'm. I'm so. I'm thrilled that I'm repeating that. I think if I were, I'm, of all the things that I probably said over and over again these three days, <laughs> I'm glad that's what people picked up on. Um, I will say that I did not grow up very emotionally astute, and I am someone who really loves text, and it's where I feel most alive. And that didn't necessarily give me all the emotional tools that I need to have really productive conversations around ideas and politics. Um, and what I feel has happened to me, and I, I will say that for the last 10 years, I have taught in this program, the Freedom and Citizenship Program at Columbia University. And it's a program where we teach the great books to um, New York City first-generation public high school students. And in that experience of going every summer and being in these rooms with students who have really different life experiences than me. Um, 
who that first generation is is always changing. So I've had a semester where most of my students are from the Dominican Republic or where they're from Iraq or where they're from Syria or um, Venezuela this summer. So I'm in rooms with students with really different life experiences than me. And I have found that the way they think about issues is actually way more complex and nuanced than anybody I've ever been near in my life. Really? Why is that? Because just- because even, they just think in such deep ways. Like I just remember... There was a huge conversation about affirmative action, and my high, these high school students were really struggling with it, but they were struggling with it in a completely different way than my colleagues. The way they were struggling with it was they did not want to appear on a college campus and feel like they didn't, they didn't earn it. Hmm. And it was making – it was their, the conversation they were having amongst each other was one about self-worth. Wow. It wasn't about policy. They were like, how am I going to feel enough self-worth? that I can get onto campus and really do my best. And what they felt, and this is like, I remember this student telling me this, he's like, I don't know if late stage, if a late stage intervention is really what I would need. I wish my nursery school and middle school and high school were just equal. Wow. And I was like, okay. And, and, and then we had a nuanced conversation. Okay, if it's not, then what should universities do? But their whole impulse around the conversation was a self-worth one. And it alerted me to the fact that, um, the way people form political opinions is really um, deep, nuanced, and experientially informed. And I learn so much more about ideas and politics and my students when I ask the curi- when I am curious and I ask them to walk me through how they got to an idea. Like, how did you get there? Like, what experience formed it? Like, I, for me, that has been how I learn. But I, I also even learned that technique, I think, from my students. Got- all right. Well, <clears throat> this answer is too interesting. Now I have three follow-up questions, okay, which I don't always have, but this is like, yeah. first of all, quick, do you think you're an introvert, an extrovert? You said you you find yourself in books. Like that's your... Yeah. It's funny. I did that test recently, you and, know, where you do it. I'm yeah. like smack in the middle. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Good, that's it. Yeah. Because often you hear, I remember Susan Cain, she writes yeah. a lot about introverts and extroverts and totally. loud introverts, I think is her term or something along those quiet, quiet extroverts. I don't know, whatever. Um, the name of her book is Quiet. I'm somewhere in one of those where I think I present one way, but I need a... I do love the alone time. <laughs> um, the other piece, it's so interesting, what you quoted from your students from, you said Venezuela? The yeah. Student you were, is yeah. that I but, think when affirmative action is presented in the public square for debate, it's presented as a late stage intervention. This has been, an, uh, you know, the people who are, who are advocating for it are saying the system leading up to this is inequitable. People don't have the same level of opportunity. And there are other people who think there's, I think it's procedural fairness, right? There's a whole different types yeah. of fairness. And they're like, well, that's not fair. Meaning there's also people who aren't uh, minorities who are underrepresented, who are working also, you know, hard. And why should somebody get there who doesn't? Mm. That, the presentation you just uh, gave of sort of like, hey, I, I don't know if I feel comfortable being on a campus where I don't really deserve to be there, but we're doing a late stage intervention. That's not where we need to be. The The affirmative action needs to be at the nursery school level and the grade school level. I think that would be much more compelling to the, the more the, the side that right now feels very threatened by affirmative action. Is that something? I mean, why isn't that out there more? I've never heard that articulated quite that way. That was my, yeah, that was my student, not me. Right. But I would I would say that as their teacher, I still want them in that college. Right. No, I, I hear that. <laughs> no, I, I mean I but I do think there's a whole other way to have this conversation and mm-hmm. when you I think student I, my students have had it in a more nuanced way. And a way that really hits why it matters. Like by the way, the student that's concerned about that 
is also the student you desperately want on a college campus. To be campus. at that college campus, Because yes. they are humble, yeah. and they are deep, and they are the ones who actually think about how you fix it down the educational stream. Yeah. That is, yeah, but they didn't go to a, they didn't have equality up until that point in their education. Right. And the so you don't want to lose them. Yeah. Like you, more than anything, you don't want to lose them. They, they, those students on a campus are exactly the kind of learners that make college worthwhile. Hmm. For me, I mean. Yeah, that's a great point. And to teach them, can I just say something? Yeah, no, you can say anything you want. Sorry, I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like I, I spend a lot of time teaching. And I have found that students who are um, humble and open and grateful add so much to a classroom. Hey, there's so much I want to cover here with you. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you this last question. Okay. Because uh, this last follow-up question. And, okay. we're gonna, and then we're going to play the game called Radical Moderation. Okay, great. It's a really popular game. I think Hasbro's <laughs> thinking of making it into a, uh, or Mattel. There's a big bidding war. Um, you said you like to ask your students, how did you get there to a position? Um, I, I know I have a favorite writer, uh, Jonathan Haidt. Is that how you pronounce it? I think so. Okay, good. Just confirming. Um, who I know you've done some work with. Um, I've mostly worked with Caroline Mell from Open Mind, but it's part right, of the same it's part group. of the same yeah. thing. One of his, uh, I don't know if it's his, yeah. in his book that he, you know, one of his ideas that he talks about is that we often come to positions and then give it a justification later. Right. As opposed to, like, let's think through this, like Senator Moynihan, and here's how we end up. Um, so if you have these conversations where you're asking people, sort of, how did you get to this place? How do you avoid the trap of you know, retroactive justification that I think often takes place with all of us, myself included. I actually think you help students walk that, like they acknowledge it in the process of describing how they got there. Uh, like I actually think pedagogically, they start to see that, oh, I got there from this experience. Okay, imagine you were having that experience and you saw it from a totally different perspective. Like mm -hmm. what if you were an onlooker and not a participant? Um, what if you were the person selling the item and not buying the item? What if you were, I think that when, when you start to slow them down a little bit and walk them through the process of an idea creation, then you can get them very self-reflective around what's an intellectual stake, what's an emotional stake, and what's just an anecdotal learning that might actually be a minority opinion um, in the data. Hmm.